Okay, we are in Revelation. I'm going to need my glasses today. And we are in chapter four. We're skipping over two and three since we already preached through those. And we're going to try to get through chapter four and chapter five, which are both small chapters. So I'm going to read chapter four. And then we'll start going through it where we're, we've, we've set up the, um, the uh, kind of the backdrop here of, of who wrote it and all of that. So Revelation 4, 1 beginning, it says, After this I looked, and before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice I heard was speaking to me like a trumpet, and it said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. And at once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with something sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. Some of your versions might say Sardius. A rainbow, uh, which resembled an emerald, circled the throne. And surrounding the throne and the 24 other thrones were seated on them, 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their head. And from the throne came flashing, flashes of lightning rumbling and the peals of thunder. And before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. And these are the seven spirits of God. Also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, as clear as crystal. And in the center around the throne, there were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. And the first living creature was like a lion, the second like an ox, the third had a face like a man, and the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and, was, and is to come. And whenever the living creature, creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sit on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. And by your will, they were created, and they have their being. All right, that's interesting, is it not? <laughs> what in the world does that mean? I remember we talked about that this is intended to resemble a fever dream. Right? That's how this letter is to get off of the island of Patmos, and this is how it's going to get to these seven churches, and then from there spread out to the broader church. So it's supposed to resemble something crazy so that the Romans don't know what it is. Uh, so I want to look here uh, at the picture of the throne room first, uh, and then we're going to get into, in chapter 5, some, uh, some deeper things here. So I want to begin in, in Revelation 4, 1. It says, and then I looked, and behold, a door was standing open in heaven. The first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Who is what is the first verse or voice that John heard in chapter one? Because he appeals back to the first voice. Who is the first voice? We talked about it. The, the first voice is the one that has been speaking to the seven churches. Right? Who is that voice? Christ. We know that because John wrote and used his red pen, right? So I'm going to get mileage out of that. So our speaker is Christ. Um, 
Well, then uh, we go to the, the next thing we want to look at for three. We're going to do some process of elimination. He who sat uh, there talking about the throne uh, had the appearance of Jasper and Sardius and around the throne was a rainbow that had an appearance of emerald. Well, first of all, who is sitting? If, if Christ is uh, standing and speaking uh, to John, then who is sitting? Okay, the Father is sitting. So we, we know that just by process of elimination, that's not Christ, right? Um, and uh, we want to get to this picture. Uh, uh, what does this mean? And we can read too far into pictures. And I don't think we're going to look and say, well, this picture represents this thing and this. But we want, it's there for a reason. We just don't want to make too much of it. Uh, so let's look at these stones. I, this is a picture of... Um, Jasper, uh, I think, is that, no, let me get this right. Excuse me, that is Sardius. Uh, Sardius is a red stone. Uh, and what, this is actually a carving of an uh, emperor. I thought, well, that's the closest I could get. Everything else was Buddhas. So, well, I don't want a Buddha. <laughs> so, uh, and so there's this, this picture. Um, and, okay, so what does that mean? Um, I want to go through kind of the pictures here. And the next thing is we, we have this uh, Jasper, or some say uh, Carnelian. Revelation 21, 11 tells us a little bit more about it. it says that it was uh, uh, as clear as crystal. So um, what's called Iaspis, or Jasper, uh, is then a general word. It's not a specific kind of stone. It, it's been used to refer to all sorts of things. So we really don't know. Uh, the only thing that we can kind of trace is that Pliny, and I'm not even sure if it was the father or the son, um, around this time, Pliny the uh, elder was, was a, a historian. He died in the, the fire of uh, the volcano of Pompeii. Um, so, so around the same time as, as John and all those. And, um, but uh, he describes it as a blue, sometimes green stone. So that's interesting. So it's not uh, what some it's our Jasper today looks actually a lot like Sardius. It's a it's a red stone. Um, so and he calls it rare. So I thought, well, I don't know what it is. Nobody else knows what it is. So I just kind of pictured something uh, and, and it talks about the glory of a Right. Uh, so, so it's not the, the object itself. So I thought, well, that looks pretty interesting if I if I if I did it like that. I'm just trying to picture what a dream looks like. You know, you have a dream, you try to relay your dream, no one understands what it looks like, right? Sometimes you don't really remember what it looks like. And then I, I went back to this picture. It talks about a green rainbow. Now, this is weird for me, right? A green rainbow. To me, rainbows have, what makes a rainbow a rainbow is that it has many colors. You know, what in the world is a green rainbow? Now, I'm trying to put myself in John's place. Right? What, what, can you think of anything that looks in nature like a green rainbow? Yeah, imagine that. If I was John, and I've never been to the North Pole, that might look like it. Now, again, I'm not saying that this is what it is. And I don't think that we need to look too far into it. It might, his dream might have looked absolutely nothing like this, right? What, if I was John, would I come away with something that looked like that? 
would you come away with any kind of thoughts? Would you at least be impressed about what you're seeing? This idea of the glory of God. Uh, as you sit in prison, wondering, much like John the Baptist had, sitting in prison, wondering, am I, am I losing it? Uh, is, uh, is, is there anything to this stuff? You know, I, I don't know what's going to happen. And you see this, this might wake you up. That's all I can get from it. I, I don't, I don't see anything in it more significant than that. If, if, if there is, um, then it's going to take a mind better than mine, which is probably not too hard to find, uh, to figure that out. But I, I do want to caution us that we, we not look too far into, you know, Sardius stands for this and various things like that, because the Bible simply doesn't give us that key. Um, well, I want to talk, I want to move on to uh, Ezekiel, uh, because we get into these four creatures, all right? And, and, uh, and they're mentioned elsewhere in the Bible, which is interesting. In fact, they're mentioned in several places elsewhere in the Bible, in the Old Testament. The reason this is important is because there's this idea of trying to symbolize everything. Now, I do think that they're symbols. I don't, I don't know as though they actually look like this. This is a dream. I think there are things in here that symbolize things, and I don't even know if I can figure those out. I don't think there's actually creatures that look, but they might. But I do believe that they're actual creatures. And the, and the reason is because it's almost the exact same description. And, and we're going to define what they are. Both Ezekiel uh, and um, we'll refer to these. So first of all, Ezekiel 1, 5, and 6. And from the midst of this came the likeness of four living creatures and their appearance. They had a human likeness, but each had four faces and each of them had four wings. And he goes on and on and on and on and on. Right, and describes like the exact same thing that John does. Well, okay, let's move on and let's look at uh, Ezekiel 10, 9, and 10. This is later on in the same, uh, the same book. He describes them further. He says, I looked and there were four wheels beside the cherubim. Beside each cherub and the appearance of the wheels was like sparkling barrel. And as for their appearance, the four had the same likeness as of a wheel within a wheel. Right, and so we're going on and on. So he describes them, doesn't he? Now let's, let's look at, what are they? He defines them for us. What are they? What's that? Well, he, they have wheels, but their appearance is like wheels, right? They have eyes, but he defines who they are. They're cherubim, they're angels. They are existing creatures. Now, uh, we can get into the pictures of what these wheels within a wheel means, um, and we would have to even figure out what that looked like, to, but the eyes and things like that. We're going to look at what these symbols mean, but we want to look now at Isaiah uh, 6 and 3. And above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew and called the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And the whole earth is full of his glory. Again, 
so so these this is if we looked at the broader thing which we're not really studying Isaiah or Ezekiel <laughs> we would see that it's the same picture so I don't know if there's a difference between cherubim and seraphim they're both angelic creatures and that's about as much as we know <laughs> everything else is a mystery and I'm not going to try to figure out if they're cherubim or seraphim or maybe those are just two words that mean the same thing much like uh, we talk about elders and pastors or whatever they're the same they're the same thing um so I want to look then at uh, what the, the connection is to these. What, what, why have this? There's, there's in, in both Isaiah and in Ezekiel, there's something going on in these chapters that is the same as what is going on in Revelation. And that's why I think the picture is important. If we back to Isaiah 6, verse 8, he said, I heard the voice saying, whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And so I said, here am I, send me. And if we look at Ezekiel chapter 2, verse 3, he says, he said to me, son of man, I send you to the people of Israel, to nations of rebels who have rebelled against me. So what is happening in both of these? We notice that these pictures both appear in the beginning, or near the beginning of these books, right? What is the common theme of both Ezekiel and Isaiah? Okay. All right. These two men are being sent with a specific message, uh, a, a prophecy from God because of whatever the condition is at the time. Um, so we get back to uh, to revelation if you're a jew you immediately and, and a lot of the leaders of churches were still jewish and, and there's certainly a jewish contingent in most of these churches they would recognize this and even the gentiles by now would recognize these they've been many of them don't have new testament books so they still a lot of their doctrine was based on old testament books that they had and, and were uh, prophecies and, and various things like that. Their more basic more understanding of morality came from what they understood from Judaism uh, until they started getting New Testament books circulated around and, and could get a deeper understanding. So, so they would recognize this immediately. What is John saying about this letter? Sent as a warning. It's it's uh, certainly as as we we've read the last two, the last two chapters. We've seen the condition of the church, much like, uh, much like, the in the Old Testament. But they're also going to get the picture that this is inspired. This isn't you know, I'm not an old senile guy. They're going to recognize this is the picture of these angels that have inspired these dreams. These have prophetic references you're going to need to look at these the way that we looked at isaiah the way that we looked at ezekiel the way that we looked at daniel the way that we looked at all of these things we're going to kind of need the same focus uh these are real and they would have understood the gravity of this book immediately um so um <clears throat> revelation chapter 4 verse 4 then move on to this next group Around the throne, there were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments, 
and with golden crowns on their heads. Now this is the harder one to do because we don't really have other scriptures that relate to us who these are. And so there's opinions abound. <laughs> okay? I'm going to run through just a brief couple <laughs> to who these are. So, so there's the first thing is that, that people want to start interpreting symbolically, and that's fine. Uh, it may be symbolic. Well, if it was symbolic, what could it be symbolic of? You see 24. Let your mind wander. What would you see? Can you think of anything that might come to 24? Okay, we've got 12 tribes. 12 apostles, and that's where everybody's mind goes first. My mind went there first. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Uh, so, so this could symbolically be a reference to God's people of all time, you know, as, as symbolized in this. That's another one. Anybody else know anything else about 24? There's something else that's interesting about 24. Twenty-four is the number of courses of priests in the temple. That's how many there were, right? Uh, so uh, that's just there was they were all divided up into twenty-four and kind of took their turn. Uh, and when your your family's group was done, uh, uh, then another group came in and they took their turn to do the service of the temple, the maintenance, and various things like that. And so they just kind of went off and on like that. So. Okay, so, so in other words, so, so all of your priesthood was divided into 24 groups so by family. So they called it a course because they, they went in a circuit throughout, I don't know if it was a, through a year or if they took more than a year. I don't know how long it took, six months, whatever it was, but it took their turn, however long that was, and, and they, would, uh, they would go on a circuit like that. I don't know if it was because some lived far away you know, and they would come down and do their thing and kind of go back home. I don't know exactly how it worked, uh, but they would take care of the temple. Uh, they would, uh, you were priests, so they would, you know, you would have, you know, these ones doing uh, whatever priests did um, and in maintenance or whatever, uh, or the, the spiritual duties. So, um, so there's a, even later on, we see them, these 24 are offering incense and things like that so that's kind of the same symbol um so so that's all if it's symbolic of something you know uh, is it, it a reference of the leaders of the church or something to that effect or or dead saints or i i don't know uh, but th that's where some people go to symbolic um <clears throat> um then there's the well if it's not symbolic is it literal so if it's literal, uh, well, let's look at a passage here. This is later on, Revelation 7, 11. I do see them later on in the book of Revelation when I say we don't have other scriptures about them. What I mean is we don't have like Old Testament or other references that help us. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the churches, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God. Now, this is interesting because we've, we know that angels are real and we've already established that there's like a special group of angels called the seraphim or cherubim. Like these, there's these, these four, right? 
So if, if this group is real and this group is literally real, to me, it doesn't make sense that this group here mentioned right along with them is symbolic and, you know, not literal. Um, to me, just trying to, you know, interpret this and be responsible with it, it seems like that would naturally point to them existing. Who they are? I don't know. Let's, let's continue on Revelation 7.13. He says, one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? Uh, so, that, again, we're not going to get into uh, that group that he's talking about, but he's having, at least in the stream, a conversation with one of them. Uh, that's interesting. Uh, again, it could be a figurative conversation. Remember, this, this talks about how he was in the spirit. So this is all a dream. In fact, it, it repeats that in, in Revelation here in chapter 4. Uh, he gets called up to heaven, but the next verse in verse 2 says, and at once I was in the spirit. So again, he was not physically caught up to heaven. He was caught up in a dream, in a spirit. So, uh, so this could be just a dream. This might not actually have been a real conversation. But I do find it interesting that if this is literal, people he does not recognize them right if this was the 12 apostles as you see like hey pete where you been how's it up there you know uh I, there's no wow i was with moses or i was with you know whatever i it, there's no reference to oh there's joseph i saw joseph or what if it's one of the 12 patriarchs or whoever this is he doesn't recognize them so so there's an idea that that these were dead saints, uh, special super saints or whatever. I don't know uh, if these are even human or formerly human, uh, whatever they are in whatever form they are now. Um, in fact, I would uh, look at one other passage, which to me tells me that they weren't. Um, he says, when he had scrolled, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down in front of the lamb, each holding a harp and a golden, so this is where we get playing on harps in heaven, right? uh, and golden bowls full of incense, and the incense is the prayers of the saints. And this is important. This idea that these are saints, and they're holding what? What are they holding? Prayers of the saints. What do you think might have come from that? From this idea that these are saints or dead Christians, super-Christians. That's, that's, that is, you got voted on. You died, you got voted. This is a super-Christian. We're calling him a saint. And then they would have a council. It's, 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 it's funny, but they did this. We have to determine whether or not he was a saint. It's like, no, you don't. <laughs> I'm a saint. What, what do you think might have come from that idea, though? This idea of prayers to saints. That, that, yeah, to, 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 be, to be that special group that, that gets to hold the, the prayers of Christians. And, and so we're going to go in and we're going to stand in front of these statues and we're going to light candles to these saints. And they're going to take our prayers to God. Well, this is dangerous. 
It's dangerous. So exactly, exactly. Right. Right. And and right. Right. And I think what we're going to we're gonna look at some some things here. Um Let's let's go on here. We'll, we'll come back to the idea. Let's uh, Revelation eight three. Another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of the saints. That's kind of along the same line. Uh, so the angels we see here, angels do something with prayers. Now I don't pray to angels either, but we're going to see as beginning. Uh, uh, here in a little bit we're going to see probably more next week what what this symbolizes with the prayers of the saints but um i don't want to get too far let's then uh so we've established that these are angelic creatures of some sort maybe a little bit higher than a normal angel maybe a little bit lower than a than one of the these uh four angelic cherubim but we get to <clears throat> this crystal sea what is this crystal sea? What do you suppose? Here we are in this vision. Anybody know about Revelation? What happens with this crystal sea as we it will appear in our in our visions throughout the book of Revelation? And what is always happening with this crystal sea? We're going to see creatures coming out of it, right? We talked about how this is uh, uh, the unfolding of events, very likely. Um, that that's the earliest and, and, and probably for a while it was the most popular version or view of Revelation. So each of these things are going to, to represent something happening upon the earth, uh, at least in this sphere. So it is what we would call a theater of operations, right? It is, it, it, it's what's happening as God looks over the, the world or this part of the world and, and these various things coming up that are representative of, of, of world events. Uh, and, and so uh, we're going to move on to chapter five. Any thoughts before we move on to chapter five? Okay, so, so we have a kind of a picture of the throne room and, and what it looks like. And again, we, we remember that, that this is uh, symbolic. Um, okay, chapter 5, verse 1. He says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll. It was writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seal and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside of it. I wept and be, uh, I wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside of it. And then the one of the elders said to me, do not weep. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed and he was able to open the scroll and the seven seals. And I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, circled around by the four living creatures and the elders. And he had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out to the earth. And he came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down in front of the lamb, each one having a harp 
they were holding the seven bowls full of the incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals, because you are slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them a kingdom and the priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. And I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and ten thousand times ten thousands, and they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. There's not really a lot of symbolism, as you might think, in this chapter. Uh, there is a ton of application, though. Uh, but I do want to look at the scroll. What is the dilemma? There's a, there's a problem in heaven. That's how we know that this is figurative, and it's a dream. Okay, so we, we have the, the problem. The initial problem is that I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll. Uh, it's written uh, with seven seals, right? First, I want to talk about the scroll. What is wrong with this picture? This is every picture you will look. I, I, I made one, and I forgot to bring it. I made a scroll, and uh, I, didn't, I, don't even, I still don't know if it was going to work. Um, what happens if you pop off a seal off of this? Absolutely nothing. You still can't open it, right? You got to get to the end of the seals before you open it. Uh, and so actually probably what this looked like is there's one seal. And then the way they would do this is, is as they rolled it up, if you had different messages that you wanted, you would put a steel, seal in the middle of it. And that's so it just wax and press it and then continue to roll up until you didn't want to open it any further and then open it. And then you get to the end and then you've got the, the beginning or technically the beginning. You, then you've got one seal. Uh, so <clears throat> that would what it would probably look like. There's seven seals and we're going to see a succession of seven events um, beginning in a few chapters. I believe that's in, in chapter eight that we begin. But um, so we have a problem. Right, of these seven events, and no one in heaven and earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. But you point out the, the real dilemma is not just that no one was found, but what? Why was no one found? Worthy. No one was worthy. Now, does that sound sacrilegious to you? Who is holding it? Who's holding the scroll? The father is holding the scroll. Is he not worthy? Are we going to say that God is not worthy to open the scroll? But the vision says no one was found worthy to open the scroll. That sounds sacrilegious to me. We're going to see that it's not. So we would have to then identify what the worthiness is based upon, right? Okay, that, there's that, that is a good point. That's a great point. Um, he's looking for somebody else. Um, 
So we would note that it's not based on two things, right? It's not based on divinity because the Father is divine and the Holy Spirit is divine. They are, in terms of their nature, they are authorized to do anything that the Father is able to do if, it, if it's something that requires divinity. And it's not based on perfection. Who else in heaven is perfect? Okay, the sun. Who else is perfect in heaven? The angels are perfect. You don't get second chances up there. You sin. The Bible tells us they don't understand grace. It's not a concept that they're perfect or else they're out. So, so if it's based on perfection, angels could open a scroll. In fact, we will see throughout history that history is affected. These uh, history is affected and moved by angels. So they, they, in some sense, open scrolls, if you want to think of it like that. If we're looking at simply the meaning of affecting world events, they do that. But in this particular case, they're not. They're not allowed to. Uh, there's something different. What is it about Christ that gives him this worthiness? There's a different thing that's not divinity, and it's not perfection. It's something which the cannot say, and it's something which the Holy Spirit cannot say. Okay. It, it, it is um, his, uh, his, his death and resurrection. First of all, I want to look at his identity. Revelation chapter 5, verse 5 says, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more before the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and the seven seals. So we see the idea of conquering. And this is interesting. He is a lion, right? What, is a, what are these two pictures? The lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David. What do they have to do with? Okay, his lineage, and specifically, what about his lineage? Who is David? He was a king. You see, we, we look at this and say, well, if it's sacrilegious that God can't open the scroll, and only Jesus can, well, then it's just as sacrilegious that Jesus doesn't sit on a throne, because they're equal. Yeah, we do find that Jesus sits on a throne. He just sits on a different throne. He is a king of the line of David. He is the one that has authority down here. This is the sphere that's been given to him. And, and, and we want to not make this about polytheism, right? We want to kind of separate ourselves. This is something that they have agreed to, whatever, however they came to that agreement. This has been the arrangement from before the earth began. This, this concept of of what they each were going to do and what their roles are. It's not, God's not sitting up there wondering why he can't get good help to open scrolls. All right. Th this, is, this is a picture of, of they're trying to relay something to us through this vision. And the idea is that these events, whatever they be, were important. And this is down here, what is in this crystal sea, right? that the world and these events, these belong to the one who has the jurisdiction of this world. And that one is 
the one who sits on the throne of David. And that's Christ. That's his throne. His throne room, his throne is not in heaven. His throne is down here. He is a king right now. He's not a king in the future. He's not just going to be a king for a thousand years. He's the king right now. That's important. Um, so that's his identity. He's royalty. Uh, his merit, as we said, Revelation chapter 5, 9, how did he get this? It says they sang a, a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. So with this, this discussion of worthiness, for you were slain. By your blood, you ransomed people from God in every tribe and language and people and nation. That, that's what you're talking about. He, he conquered. He became a person that could identify with us. And that's what Hebrews is about. The whole book of Hebrews. The Bible says he, he, he got a much greater name because of all of that. Because of his death. Because of his willingness to submit. Right? So, uh, so we come to the merit of Jesus, and we want to talk about one other thing here, based on his death, and then finally, his government. What I mean by his government or his administration, if we want to look at that, it's an angelic. Uh, and so we go back to talking about these angels and these elders and all of these things. These are all symbolic. We talk about the eyes, right? And we talk about there's this weird picture of them having horns right and and what the what does all this mean with the horns and the eyes uh and it i think it has to do with this uh, these are two passages which elsewhere relate the same idea just not symbolism in heaven the angels always see the face of my father who is in heaven and jesus is talking about let the little ones come to me why because christ governs through angels his angels, they see everything happening. That's the picture of these eyes in all these directions. Right? They see everything. That's the same picture of, of the wheel and the wheel. Like they can go anywhere in any direction. They've got this wheel. It's like, like a, like a, it looks like, kind of like a gyroscope sort of thing, but it, it's, it's like it moves. They can, they can move everywhere. It's just symbolic language to talk about how God and how Christ governs. It says of the angels in Hebrews, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. A horn in, in, in their culture was a symbol of power. That's why, they, that's why the bulls, right? that, that, that's why the bull was such an important symbol to them. It was power. Remember the altar? The altar had horns on each corner of it. It was a symbol of God's power. Um, and so the horn was a very, very important picture. And, and so when we're talking about the angels, right, they probably don't have horns and eyes all over and under their armpits and not every, you know. But the idea that they can see in all directions, they know what's going on, they behold, and they give accounts to God, and they give accounts to Christ. And they have power to do amazing things when they are told to do them. And that is his administration. So I want to get to the application of this as we close. Because there are some important things here. Um, 
And that is our response. Why is this so important? If we read this, um, first of all, we want to look at uh, where our attention is directed. We have a focus sometimes that's in the wrong location. Where have we spent all our time this morning talking about most of it? We've been talking about angels. And we've been talking about these creatures because they're really interesting. And we're talking about the eyes all over here and the horns here. and All of these things bring our attention to different things. That, that's we get to the supernatural and and when you read revelation you open up and you're like yeah okay okay second and third chapter and but i really want to get to the good stuff the, the juicy stuff these crazy animals and beasts and all this stuff and the 666 and the this and the that and the this and we want to get into all and it's all fine it's there for a reason and we get into that right but where is our attention in chapter five directed to and chapter four as well it is directed into two locations when we look at the elders themselves that we, we're so fond of, yeah, and, and we look at these four creatures and we look at the angels, we're looking at them and we're, wow, I wonder what they are. And I wonder what that means. Where are they looking? They're looking in two locations, right? Uh, he took the scroll and the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell in front of the lamb. Their attention isn't on, look how great we are and we're pretty cool and we've got all these eyes and horns, right? <laughs> That's... They are directed, our attention when we read these chapters should be directed to the throne. That's important. They cast their crowns before the Father. Their glory, whatever that is a symbol of, we give our glory to you. This is not about us. They all sing a new song of praise to the Lamb. So we get into a discussion, um, not just of our attention. Um, Revelation chapter 5, verse 14, it says, The four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. I want to have a little discussion of worship. What does the word worship mean? Anybody know? Okay, it involves submission. It means to bow. That's all it means. It's a word that just means to bow. It does not mean to sing. I'm not saying that singing isn't worship. I'm saying that it means to bow. And this is interesting because with that definition, let's read this again. It says, with the four living creatures said amen, and the elders fell down and bowed, which seems redundant to me. Right? And I think if we look at this, we can come up with a kind of a separation between the two words. They fell down. That's physically what they did, right? But then they bowed. And I think it's not just a repetition, but I think it's the substance of what they did. And I think that you're, you're, you're on the right track there with that, that, that it's about their submission. It's about something internally happening. Falling down is what they did externally, but bowing is what they did internally. That, that worship is about what's going on on the inside. It is humbling. 
Have you ever noticed if we sing a song with the word stand in it, what do we do? I stand in awe of you. Must stand. We sing a song. We bow down and we worship you, Lord. Why don't we ever bow? Why not? Why not? It's humiliating. Seriously. It's humiliating. And it's intended to. That's what it is. To give your glory up and to bow down. It's easy to stand. But there's something that happens internally that is hard to bow. Very difficult. That's what worship is. Worship is not five acts. Worship is not a checklist where we say, well, I came in, I had communion, I prayed, I sang. That is not worship. Because you can do all of it and never bow. I'm not saying that it's not involved in worship. The idea of the five acts of worship is a man made doctrine. They worshiped. And so far as I know, they did not do any one of those things. They just submitted. That's important. Last one, and then we'll be done. The four living creatures said, Amen. Um, oh, let's see. Okay, I must have forgot to paste my thing in there, but we get to our obedience. Our response. I forgot to paste the verse in here. But God defines himself for us in the, in the verse, what they sang. What, what did they sing? That's not very imaginative uh, lyrics to the song. To sing it over and over and over. What is God telling us? What is his primary characteristic? Oh, we love the idea of God is love. John wrote that too. God is love. And God is love. But the angels do not sing in heaven, love, love, love is the Lord God Almighty. His number one characteristic is holiness. And if it comes between love and holiness, he's going to pick holiness. He loves me. But if I don't respond to his holiness, I will not receive the benefit of his love. That's powerful. That is his number one. He cannot betray his holiness. His love is a conditional thing in terms of, it's unconditional in terms of what he feels, but in terms of how he shows it, it is dependent upon his primary characteristic and it requires my obedience. It requires my worship of life, not just my worship of words, not just my worship of Sunday morning. So these are, I think, the, the great lessons of, this, of these chapters. Any ideas or thoughts before we, before we close?
Okay, you're dismissed.